1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16. We actually covered verse 1 because it really belongs pretty much to the last chapter. So we're going to start with uh, verse 2 through 16. One of the things that I love about Calvary Chapel is that we go through the scriptures verse by verse. Our aim is to systematically and thoroughly someday make sure that you can say that you have received the whole counsel of God. To our, our desire is to deliver to you the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. The re, one of the reasons is that it helps us keep things in perspective. Things that the Bible talks a lot about, we, we spend more time on. Things that the Bible doesn't talk too much about, we don't spend as much time on. It also helps keep the pastor from circling around his favorite scriptures, his pet scriptures, his hobby horses. It also keeps the pastor from avoiding certain difficult unpopular or controversial scriptures, text that could that he would avoid otherwise. That's tonight. Tonight, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, and see the verses that I would, if I had my druthers, would not teach. Chapter, two, chapter 11, verse 2, starts this way. Now I praise you, brethren. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions that just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. (laughs) No, really. (laughs) Lord, again, we thank you for these words, and we pray that you would help us to rightly divide them. Lord, uh, we know that these scriptures, so many of them are controversial in so many circles today, Lord. But we thank you that your heart never changes, Lord, that you have uh, these words of eternal life. And we pray that you'd help us to rightly understand them, Lord, never to misrepresent you or your thoughts or your uh, your feelings, Lord, your directives, Lord, your commands, all those things we want to rightly understand in their proper context. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Most of you guys know this. It was written in response to some very specific questions, very specific controversies in Corinth, very specific issues. You guys remember some of them? The first one we saw was division in the church under different teachers. Right? I'm of uh, Paul, I'm of uh, Apollos, I'm of Peter. Um, another issue was that their love of worldly wisdom, these guys 
totally love to just sit around and philosophize, and they didn't really weigh the Bible as much as they should have. Um, another controversy or question that was arising was that these guys were suing each other. The, the people in Corinth, there were lawsuits among believers, there was sexual immorality, there was divorce, idolatry, all these things Paul has already addressed as we come to chapter 11. Paul has just spent chapters 8 through 10, if you've been with us, you know this, answering this question. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, this will be the last time I ask the question, but how many of you struggled with that this week? Is it okay for me to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Tom, apparently. I think he was kidding. I hope he was kidding. We have, none of us have struggled with that question, but over the past few weeks, we have discovered that this very specific local controversy in Corinth provided the platform for some wonderful general principles for us in our day. We can apply these principles, not the specifics, but the principles in our day. So now in chapter 11, let me ask you guys a new question. Wives, how many of you had a heated argument tonight because your husband wanted you to wear a head covering to church and you refused? No one. Well, that's exactly the issue that they asked Paul to resolve. And though the culture and the climate are vastly different, there are still principles that we can apply. We learned this last week. Principles are wonderful things because even if circumstances or conditions change, principles can remain the same. If you live by principles, you don't have to live by the letter of the law as long as you are still pleasing God. Look at verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, Paul says, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The word traditions there is teachings. Basically, Paul's starting off by saying, look, I praise you guys. I got to hand it to you. All the things that I have taught you, specifically concerning cultural things, you have kept. And I think in particular he is referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't turn there yet. We'll get there. But... In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul explains why men do not need to wear a veil on their heads. Now, that was a brand new concept to the Jews, right? Even today, a Jewish person will wear a yarmulke. They will wear something that will cover their head. And Paul, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says that Christians are not to wear, Christian men are not to wear this uh, yarmulke or a... uh, uh, a prayer shawl is what they called it. Now, when you think about it, that would take some bravery for your average Christian in Corinth, especially if he grew up or hung around Jews. It's like, all of a sudden, I'm not going to wear this thing that I was supposed to wear for all, all these years. If he was a Greek, it wouldn't matter. But if he was brought up near or part of the Jewish culture, this would be a very brave thing for him to do, to not wear this. Now, the only problem was that the women in Corinth we're beginning to do the same thing. Now, I'm going to explain why that was a problem in a minute. But look at verse 3. But I want you to know, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that goes without saying, right? Verse 4, no? <laughs> you probably want, probably want some, some uh, de- definition here. Paul makes three declarations. You see those? Three declarations. These are his opening statement. This, he's saying, he's nailing down this argument. The question again is, hey, should, can, you, can you make my wife wear this, uh, this head covering? Because she's refusing to. 
Paul makes these three declarations and says, look, the head of every man is Christ. Anybody have a problem with that? No. The head of woman is man. Nothing yet. And the head of Christ is God. Now, to us in our culture, the first and third statements are a declaration of fact. It's that middle one that seems to be a declaration of war. The head of woman is man. It sounds as though Paul has declared war on women's rights. Paul has often been accused of being a male chauvinist pig. When Ray Steadman introduced this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, and now we come to chapter 11 where we answer the question, are women fully human? <laughs> but has, has Paul truly declared war on women's right? Wait, wasn't it Paul who, while in the epicenter of a patriarchal, patriarchal society, wrote these radical words? We saw, we saw them in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul was the guy who's accused of being such a chauvinist. He was the guy who wrote this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those were radical words. Think about that. Paul says, look, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Try telling that to a Jew. Or a Greek. I mean, racism was part of the fabric of this world, this ancient world. And he says there's ne neither slave nor free. Try telling that to a slave. Or to a slave owner who's not happy with his slave. Class discrimination was a part of the fabric, the very fabric of this ancient world. And then he says, and neither male nor female. The unbeliever who listens to that would be like, Paul, you're kidding, right? In that culture, they would say to Paul, what are you saying, that women and men are equal? And equal rights for, for women? Equal worth for women and men? See, subjugation, subjection of women was part of the fabric of this ancient world. They would say, neither male nor female? No way, Paul. This will give you some context. Women were born in that culture... All, all over the ancient world, were born as chattel, personal property. If you had a baby, everyone shows up to celebrate. If it comes out and it's a boy, they throw a week-long party. If it's a girl, they pack up and go home. If it's a boy, it's like, hooray! If it's a girl, it's like, got to go, look at the time. That's the way it was. That was the culture that Paul was born into. That was the culture that Jesus was born into. But Jesus so radically changed the views toward women. He so radically treated women differently than how they had been treated before that Paul could say, after having spent time with Jesus, look, there is no male nor female. So now you're thinking, okay, Paul, what gives in verse 3? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what is a head? Stedman says it's the hairy knob that sits on a man's shoulders. But it also happens to be the part of the body that directs, that controls, that gives 
guidance to the rest of the body. Inside your head lies the amazing three-pound mass called the brain. Well, I don't want to speak for everybody, but in most cases, we have this organism that receives information from the rest of the body. It catalogs it, it prioritizes it, and it acts in a way that is beneficial to the whole body. It directs, it leads. Now, wouldn't that be the right description for our relationship to Jesus? It should be Jesus, verse 3, it says, but I want you to know that the head of of every man is Christ. Notice the word every. That's important. Because what that means is not only Christian men, but every man is subject to Christ. There is coming a day, you guys know it, when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is the head, is the leader. Now, many are rebelling against that truth. And they're living as though they're a body cut off from the head. And that's not a pretty picture. That's an ugly thing. But the fact remains that the rightful head of every man, believer or unbeliever, is Christ. That's a statement of fact. Agreed? So far, so good. Now, verse 3 again. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. That's the first sticky spot we get to. But notice right off, there's a word missing. Notice the word every is missing. It says every man is subject to Christ. You would expect to see every woman is subject to man. But we don't. What's the point? The point is that this is not a universal truth. This is not about all men lording it over all women. This is not about women having to be subservient to men just because they're men. Over and over again, marriage is what we're talking about here. Over and over again, marriage is described as two people becoming one. And when two beings become one person, that being needs a head. Just one. And God in the Bible has ordained that in a marriage, a marriage, when two become one, rather than having two heads, we should have one. And that one, for whatever reason... Well, we know the reason. God created a man first. That one is the man. Now, that man, you, you wives are thinking, he may not be smarter than you, but he has been given authority. Now, we won't elaborate on that because if you were with us on the marriage series or even some other scriptures that we've gone through, um, if, if that particular thing is offensive and it trips you up, I, I want to encourage you to go on our website and find a, a message titled The S Word. Submission, And it talks about these things. We're not going to elaborate on that. But what really helps us to bring this whole thing into submission or into perspective is this third declaration. Look at verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And look at this. And the head of Christ is God. You're thinking, wait. But I thought Christ is God. Well, there's the point. Jesus Christ... Bible says is fully God. He's equal with God. He's determined voluntarily to submit to the will of his father. Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, said, my father is greater than I. Do you think he meant he's better than me? I'm not as uh, qualified as he is. No, Jesus is God. So what does he mean? He means I have submitted myself to a lower position that I might do my father's will. 
So wait then. Submission is not what the world says, a sign of weakness. But submission, when I choose to submit, is me being like Jesus. What is the gospel? But God humbling himself, becoming lower than the angels, the Bible says, entering into our world through a feeding trough. That's pretty low. To pay for my sins. That's submissive. That is exactly what Jesus did. First application, if you're looking for one, be like Jesus. Everyone, male or female. Ephesians 5 tells us husbands and wives says submit to one another. Submission is not a weakness. No, it is Christ-like. Look at verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, before you go anywhere, who is the man's head? We learned it in the last verse. The man's head is Christ. So he says, let, let's read it that way. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, who is Christ. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll explain this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You need to know that the Jews had this tradition. They would say, look, we cover our head, whether it's with the yarmulke or the prayer shawl. Back then it was a prayer shawl. We cover our head because God is a holy God. They said we cover our head like Moses did when he was in the presence of God. Um, Moses had been in the presence and Moses wore a a shawl over his head and his face. And the prayer shawl separated a sinful man from a holy God for that man's protection. That was the tradition of the Jews. That's still the tradition. But Paul, because he learned this from Jesus, gave them a new tradition. And it was this. Men lose the prayer shawl. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. This is awesome. It says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Stop there real quick. They, they were misunderstanding. The reason Moses put the veil over his head was because his, the, the glory was fading away. And he didn't want people to dwell on the fact that the, the glory was fading away. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, look at this, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Look, this is a wonderful truth that Paul's saying. Men, look, the veil is taken away. Saying, You don't need to wear the veil upon your head anymore because man can come now boldly into the throne room of grace because of what Jesus did. Paul says to the men in Corinth, look, lose the shawl because when you do, you're saying to the world, Christ has made it possible for me to boldly go where no man had gone before. Because of Jesus, I can go around without this shawl on my head because he has made it possible for me to fellowship with a holy God into the very presence, the throne room of a holy God. That's awesome. Now, Paul says to the men of the church, look, when you put the shawl back on your head, 
1 Corinthians chapter 11. When you put the shawl back on your head, you dishonor your head. That is Christ. You dishonor Christ because you should be saying to the world, I don't need a veil because Jesus has made it possible that I can go into the throne room of God. That's, a, that's the tradition that Paul was talking about in verse 2. Go with me now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I praise you that you're keeping this tradition. Guys, I know it's not easy for you to lose the prayer shawl when there's so many around you that are uh, saying, you know, that you're blaspheming or whatever. Now, the problem was that the wives began to do the same thing. You're thinking, wait a second. Why is that a problem? I mean, women are redeemed. They can enter into the throne room of God, right? Yes, definitely. I am sure that when the husbands and wives had their discussions about the head, the head coverings, that's exactly what the women said, and they were exactly right. I can enter into the throne room of God. Well, there's still some more information that you don't have yet. We're going to find a clue in verse 5. Let's start at verse 4, getting a running start. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, that is, her husband. She dishonors her husband, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. There's our clue. You might not know it yet. But in Corinth... Remember, we've talked about it over and over again. There was the temple of Aphrodite back behind the city. Up on, on the Acre Corinth was this temple to Aphrodite. There were a thousand prostitutes that would come into the town of Corinth every night. The way that they uh, kept the, the lights on in this temple was by trading their wares. A thousand prostitutes walking through the streets of Corinth every night. And you know how you identified them? She had no cover on her head. The way that you would know, oh, there's a prostitute, is she had no cover on her head. Remember, this is a Middle Eastern culture. In this culture, for a woman to have her head uncovered meant, I'm open for business. Make me an offer. Even today, in the Middle East, particularly, of course, in Muslim countries, if a woman goes into certain areas without a head covering, a burqa, perhaps, if she goes into certain places without a covering, she is saying to those men in that culture, I'm open for business. Make me an offer. I'm loose morally. That's what she's saying. Now, we've mentioned previously, Corinth was as close to, uh, to our culture as we can get morally. In Corinth, in Athens, there truly was a radical feminist movement that rebelled against the practice of head coverings. Now, today that wouldn't be considered radical, but back then in that environment, that was considered very radical. Now, are you beginning to see how this makes sense now? See, Christ has come. He has set the men and the women of the church free. And they think, well, if there's no male and female, why do I have to wear this stupid covering? But their husbands are thinking... My wife is not going to church wearing a big sign that says a store is open for business. That's not happening. Especially, verse 5 says, if she's praying or prophesying. She's going to make the whole church erupt into uh, civil war, to chaos, if she insists on praying and prophesying with her head uncovered in that culture. She dishonors her head if she does that. She dishonors her husband. 
He says, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Paul says to these Corinthian ladies, look, it would be no less uncomfortable for your husbands in this culture or and should be no less embarrassing to you if your head was completely shaved. Now, everyone would be thinking the same thing. If a woman walked into a church in that time and had her head shaved and began to prophesy, they'd be thinking, hoochie. Hoochie mama. She, she has no regard for the, the concern for things that are uh, culturally significant. Verse 6 says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. For if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. See, Paul, ever the diplomat, says, look wise, look, if you're really comfortable sending that message in church, why not go the whole way? Shave your head. Say to the world, look, I'm a prostitute. I'm an adulteress. But if it is shameful for you, for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, even today, it's a pretty big deal when Brittany Shears, uh, Spears shaves her head. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Paul is saying to these women in that culture, look, if you're not comfortable with the message that shaving your head sends, then why go down that road at all? Now, today, we don't have this issue, this specific issue. But what's the principle? There still is a principle for ladies in the church Ladies, tonight, Paul would say, does what you wear advertise something that's not for sale? That's the issue. The core issue, Paul is saying, is what you're wearing advertising something that is not for sale? Particularly if you're in the ministry, if you're on the worship team, or if you're praying, uh, if you're working in Sunday school. Now, understand what I'm saying. The last thing I want, because after a message like this, what could happen is, the last thing that I want, which is this. For some young lady, brand new person, unbeliever, walks into church and she's condemned because she dresses a certain way. No, Paul is not speaking to the unbeliever who walks in off the street. Paul is speaking to women who have been believers for a while now and are particularly, he's speaking to wives, who are deliberately dishonoring their husbands by flaunting their liberty. Look at verse 7. Paul says, For a man indeed not ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Again, there's a word missing in that phrase. Did you see it? The word missing uh, in the last phrase is the word image. Why is that? Why does it say, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man? The reason the word image isn't repeated is because both men and women were created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 5, it says that man was created, man singular was created, male and female. He called them both together man, Adam. Didn't call them the Adamses or the Adams family. He called the man and the woman together man. See, man and women are created in the image of God. But man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. It says, verse 8, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Look at the word glory there. It says, man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. The word glory there is, means, uh, in the New Testament, it always means a good opinion concerning one, 
resulting in praise, honor, and glory. It means splendor, brightness. It's like talking about the moon, the sun, the stars. It's talking about magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, grace. It says here that man is the glory of God. You guys know this. We've talked about this before. Again, in context with marriages, God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and his crowning creation, the thing that he took the most delight in, the thing that was his glory, was man, kind. And in one sense, that's true. When he created man, it was a wonderful, glorying thing. But you guys know the rest of the story. In another sense, the story goes like this. God created the heavens and the earth and said, that's good. He's created the sun and the moon and said, that's good. He created the stars and said, that's good. He created man and said, that's not good. It's not good that that man should be alone. That's how Genesis begins. God says, I'll create a helpmate for this lonely man. It's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helpmate perfectly compatible, perfectly suited, the perfect fit for this man. God created Everything and man was his crowning creation, his glory. Adam named everything, right? Adam named every creature, and you know what the last thing that he named was? Woman. That was his crowning moment. He named everything. His glory, Adam's glory, the thing that he delighted in, the thing that he gloried in, the thing that he was most proud of, was his wife, that which God had brought to him. Do you get it? When it says the glory of man is woman, or it says actually, but woman is the glory of man, that's not an insult. That's a beautiful thing. I can't tell you how proud I am of my wife. She is my glory. I am reminded of it every time somebody that I work with meets her because they say, that's your wife? She's really pretty. You know, it's just to say, I can't believe that someone pretty would actually be your wife. It's because I sing. That's what it is. Husbands, husbands in the room tonight, your wife is your glory. She's God's most precious gift to you. The question is, do you and I treat them like that? Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. See, the veil, remember that's the context, the veil was a symbol of a husband's authority. The veil was a protection for the wife. The veil said, like, like our rings do, our wedding rings do today, the veil said, look, I'm taken. I belong. My body belongs to my husband. I submit to my husband and him alone. The veil was like a wedding ring. We still, by the way, have symbols of authority. I was thinking... In Calvary Chapel, Orlando, I was one of the leaders in that church. Every leadership person, every every guy that was on the leadership team, and everyone who was on the worship team had to dress a certain way. Every every guy had to wear a tie. Now, did that make us more spiritual? No. Would I have chosen to wear a tie? No. But every Sunday when I wore a tie, it was the symbol of authority around my neck. What did it say? It said, I voluntarily placed myself under the authority of my pastor who has asked me to come alongside and minister, asked me to give up some of my rights. 
I was thinking, you should ask Ben Smith. <laughs> he would love to be on the worship team and wear shorts and a T-shirt. But every time you see him, his khaki pants are a symbol of authority. He has willingly submitted to, that he might minister. Verse 10, for this reason, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of what? The angels. Oh, we were going so well here. Because of the angels. Now, do you know what that means? Me neither. I have no idea. Um, I've heard some theories. And the best theory, the best one that I can subscribe to is this. That God, the angels, we know, are God's ministering spirits. And we also know this about angels. They are military beings. I mean, they understand rank and order. They understand chain of command. We hear about legions of angels, archangels. They're very interested, it seems, in order. The only theory that I can imagine would be that the idea is that while angels minister to us in our service tonight, we are also ministering to them by how we treat each other, by how we act around each other. We know that they marvel that God would love us and redeem us, they look into salvation, they go, what? It's like, God, are you not paying attention here? We are constantly befuddling the angels, and I think the most befuddling of all would be this. How is it that Christ can redeem this race of beings? He gives up everything. He submits everything to win them to heaven. How is it that that can happen, and they can still insist on keeping their own rights? You get it? There's so many different spheres that we could be talking about here, but he's talking about specifically the, the wife that says, I don't care what my husband says. This is what I'm going to do. That could be when he says, for the angel's sake, it could be that. Now, lest you misunderstand Paul, he says in verse 11, follow with me here, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Now, I'm glad he said that brings a little balance to, again, what people misunderstand. Would you say, I think that women, even radical feminist women, cannot say in the long run, in the very long run, we don't need men. They can say it in the short run, but you can't say it and contain the, continue the human race. Now, even men, even the worst male chauvinist pig, cannot say in the long run, we don't need women. Can't do it. Why? Verse 12. For as woman came from man, the first woman, Eve, came from man, even so man also comes through woman. Now, but all things are from God. See, the first woman came from man, but ever since, every man has come from a woman. That works out pretty well. I came from that woman right there. It's my mom. She's, she's in town. Woo! I thought this would be a good time for me to say, you guys, she raised me pretty much single-handedly. And I want to honor you for that tonight. She wore the pants, not because she wanted to, but because she had to. And she did a great job. I mean, look at me. <laughs> look, Paul's point is this. This man, Paul, that some would call a male chauvinist pig, Paul says, look, we need each other. Men need women, and women need men. And he says, and we all need God. Verse 13 says, judge among yourselves. 
is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In that culture, the answer was a very easy no because of all the implications that it brought with it. Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man's hair, man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? We had almost made it through this minefield. It seems like one controversy after another. The old King James reads it this way. If a man has long hair, it is a shame to him. Now, when you know anything, if you know anything about Calvary Chapel movement, it was born, the whole movement was born from one man, Pastor Chuck Smith, ministering to hippies. So you know he had to answer this verse a lot. He said he always considered it that he really knew that God had a sense of humor because Pastor Chuck is bald. (laughs) And he is called to defend these hippies with long hair. He's called to defend their right to hear the gospel. And here's how he did it. Like, because he said, I was listening, he said, I would get uh, questions on the radio because this was a huge thing. He was on Time magazine. They would have pictures of hippies coming up out out of the ocean, their long hair, right? And all the people in the South in particular um, or like, how can you do this? They've got long hair. And so he would have to address this. Finally, he figured out, okay, here's how I'm going to answer. Um, as he would have to do this in radio interview after radio interview. He says, look, first of all, it doesn't say that it's a sin for man to have long hair. It says it's a shame. He said he would look at hippies, those whom he loved. He would love them right where they are. And he would say in his mind, some of them had really long hair. First of all, by the way. Long hair is subjective too, isn't it? I mean, this might be long hair to you. This is long hair to me. He would look at these guys and some of them who had really long hair and he'd say, that's a shame. But he said, when he would go home and look in the mirror and try to comb his own hair, he'd say, that's a shame. (laughs) Verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Here's the point. Even nature, can we all agree on this? Even nature teaches that there are differences between men and women. In general, most guys don't want to hear these words. You have such gorgeous flowing locks. But if a woman hears those words, if, if a woman has long, beautiful hair, we comment on it favorably. See, our culture has been led to believe that we should erase all differences between men and women. That's about the dumbest idea I've ever heard. We're we're going down the road where we say, look, give your boys dolls. Teach them sensitivity. Give your girls trucks. Teach them toughness. But did you know that nature itself teaches us? Did you know that hair growth patterns between men and women are different? The fact that men have more testosterone results in this. Their hair grows faster, it rests for a shorter period of time, and it dies sooner. Nature teaches us that men and women are different. And by the way, most of those hippies that were saved in the Jesus movement, most of them have short hair now. But it wasn't because someone bludgeoned them into submission. It was because they got older and they realized they had more hair in the back than on top. And they said, that's a shame. 
Styles come and go, but even nature tells us, look, that it's good for boys to be brought up like boys, girls to be brought up like girls, for men to behave like men and women to behave like women. Now, I just thought this might be something helpful to some fathers here. Here's a word to the wise for a father. It's probably tempting at some point to use verse 14 to compel your teenage son to get a haircut. And you could do that. But remember, your son is growing up, and when he gets to those teenage years, he's beginning to try to figure out this thing called headship. How am I going to wear the headship when it's my turn? And I would say that if it's the worst, if the worst way that he declares his independence is by having his hair long or blue or whatever, I'll take that. So Paul has now covered, get it, the debate about head coverings in Corinth. He says, Christian men, look, don't cover your heads. In that culture, he says, look, you're telling the world that the veil has been taken away. He says to Christian women, cover up because you're telling the world something completely different. Verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Even this last verse, when he wraps it up, it turns out it could be interpreted two different ways. He could be saying, look, if anyone wants to argue about this, there's nothing more to say. I've said everything. This is the way the custom is. Deal with it. He could be saying that. Or he could be saying, look, if anyone really wants to argue about this, don't get all fatouched. We don't demand it. It's not a universal command in the churches of God. Either way, Paul has exhausted the subject. And so have I.